Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Lucas. And this is Double Blind. Every week, we each pick a breaking scientific study, put it in context, explain exactly what happened and why it matters. So if you're curious, come with us. We think it'll be a lot of fun. This week on Double Blind, test to blood, the future of transfusions. And shake it off, how the oil and gas industry can trigger earthquakes. Jesse, what do you got for us? Well, this is actually similar to a story that we talked about um, a couple weeks ago. And let's start this off with a quick question. Have you ever donated blood? You know, here's the embarrassing thing. I haven't. And I have no good reason to not donate blood. Yeah, neither have I. And I have no good reason as well to have not done it. In fact, most surveys related to blood donation find that most people who have not donated blood have that exact comment they they go well i should have i I don't know why i just haven't gotten around to it yeah um and as we talked about a couple weeks ago when we did the story on the lab at ubc where they're finding a way to convert all blood types to be the universal donor that o right type totally we talked about just how much blood is used in transfusions in even in just north america alone it's right it was a monumental amount yeah so here's another question for you okay does artificial blood exist well, I, I know they use, like, ketchup in movies. <laughs> I'm not talking about stage blood here. Right. Um, I've never heard of it, if it does. Well, the answer to that is sort of yes and no. Um, okay. There's, there's no such thing at this point as synthetic blood or artificial blood. Okay. Even though a National Health Services survey in the United States found out that 13% of people think that synthetic blood is produced to meet the national demand. Really? Yeah. Wow. So it's a, it's a really common misconception. Oh wow! I had no idea that misconception existed. Yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty interesting one, and it speaks a lot to how little people actually know about something that is crucial to our our whole medical system. Right. So uh, before really getting into the meat of this, why would we ever want artificial blood? What's wrong with just using donations? Well, I assume there's shortages at some point in time where you don't have the right blood type. I would assume that's the yeah, reason, right? Exactly. Um, blood actually doesn't have a very long shelf life. Mm. Red blood cells last only about 35 days after donation. Okay. And platelets, which are extremely important, last even less. They only last seven days. Oh, wow. I had no idea it was that short. Yeah. So actually, after after huge natural disasters and, and, and serious um, events where a lot of people die, everyone rushes to donate blood. And often the Red Cross actually says, can, can you guys stop and come back in a couple months? Because the problem is they get this huge rush of blood after a large earthquake or a, an event or a hurricane injures a lot of people. Well, I heard about that happening in, in two recent events, September 11th and the Boston Marathon, where both cases where there were nationwide surges, nationwide being U.S., of course, nationwide surges of blood being donated. And then in the months following, all the people who regularly donated blood said, oh, I, I just did my bit. I just gave blood. I don't need to now. So there were huge sor- shortages after those events. Yeah, it's a it's a weird phenomenon that a lot of people don't realize about. Yeah. Um, another reason why blood donations can be problematic mm-hmm. is because of the transmission of disease. Um, of course. We're now able to screen for a lot of the serious ones um, that could be transmitted through transfusions like HIV or um, hepatitis. Yeah. But... 
I mean, there was a long period of time where we didn't even know what HIV or AIDS was. We didn't understand it. And, you know, a lot of, especially hemophiliacs, contracted it in that period of time through blood donations. So artificial blood could be a great thing. Now, there's no such thing as synthetic blood. Like any blood that's going to work in our system at this point is made of human cells. Okay. What we do have is blood that is made from stem cells, which are then cultured in a lab and can then be reinserted into the bloodstream. So this is kind of like growing blood? Totally. Is that the idea? Like you take a a stem cell, which is, I don't know, is that like a seed of blood and then you culture it and create it? Yeah. Yeah. So stem cells are basically cells that have the ability to become many different types of cells. Right. Undifferentiated cells. Exactly. Undifferentiated. If you take a skin cell, Mm -hmm. if that's a living skin cell, it can divide to form more skin cells, Mm -hmm. but it can only form skin cells. Okay. Yeah. Right. So a stem cell is able to form many different kinds of of cells. It has a lot of potential possible types of cells it can form. Okay. The stem cells with the most potential Mm -hmm. are... One's from, for example, umbilical cord blood that can still become any type of cell. Right. I've heard of, you know, people saving umbilical cord blood. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas stem cells extracted from bone marrow Mm -hmm. are hematopoietic, which means they can become any type of blood cell. Right. But not another type of cell. They're limited to blood. So they couldn't become a liver cell, but they could become any of the different types of cells that are produced by our bone marrow. Okay. So like white blood cells, red blood cells... Exactly. Yeah. So this process exists where we can take stem cells and by culturing them in a lab with the right growth factors, Mm -hmm. we can create red blood cells out of them, which can then be injected back into the bloodstream. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the first time this was done was actually in 2011. Okay. Um, Now, this study that I'm talking about today, uh, a, a lot of the coverage of it said that this was the first time that lab grown blood cells were injected into a human. That's not true. That's not true. Okay. The first time was in 2011. What happened there was that a study involved extracting bone marrow stem cells from a patient, growing them in a lab to form red blood cells, and then injecting them back into the same patient. Okay. So it was all from the same subject. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it was reasonably successful. Uh, The cells worked fine. They didn't cause any adverse effects, and they stuck around for a pretty long time. Um, so that, that was kind of the precursor to this study in a way. So I, I, I keep saying study and I want to catch myself here because this isn't really a study. This is more an announcement of a study. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the UK's national health service is basically trying to speed up and ready the world for moving away from donated blood and towards being able to grow it all in a lab. Really? Yeah. Now, we talk a lot about sort of on-the-edge breakthroughs and massive research and studies in science on the podcast. Yeah. Studies and and breakthroughs that are so new that we can just begin to speculate about how and when they might be used. Mm -hmm. So I kind of thought it would be nice to have a story that's on the other side of that. Right. Because, yeah, there's, there's no insane new innovation here. This is, as I mentioned, something that's been around for at least five years, and the the science behind that's been around for a lot longer. But it's this is kind of the culmination of decades of research on growing blood in a lab. This is the first movement towards actual production yeah, and mass implementation like of this. Large-scale testing of it. Oh, very interesting. Cool. Yeah, so the NHS's plan is to administer small amounts of blood 
to a large number of volunteers um, starting in 2017. Okay. Yeah, and small amounts of blood in this case means like several teaspoons each. Just to look for reactions? Yeah, so what they're looking for is primarily adverse effects. Um, They want to find out whether there's any negative reaction that'll happen when you have lab-grown blood that is not originally from your stem cells in your body. Ah, of course. So they also want to find out how long those cells will last in the body because the the 2011 study had a half-life of about a month for the cells, meaning after about 25 days, mm-hmm. around 50% of the artificial cells were gone. Okay. What is it for, like, my own red blood cells? So the, the average lifespan of red blood cells that are natural to your body and produced in your bone marrow is about 115 days. Okay, so, yeah, you'd assume then the half-life would have to be significantly longer than that. So ideally we want cells that are healthy, they're fine for your body to use, and they last just as long as your regular cells. Yeah. In terms of how the process works, we've kind of talked about that a bit already. First, we need stem cells. The umbilical cells are the best, but also harder to get because they require donations from mothers who've just given birth. Right, that can be tricky. Yeah, it can be tricky. We we do get donations there, but not in the volume that we would need to roll this out on a large scale. Okay. Um, as it turns out, we can also get those stem cells just from the blood of adult donors. Really? Not even from bone marrow? Not even necessarily from bone marrow. Um, okay. We can actually take the blood of adult donors and then reprogram some of the cells in there to be in a similar state to umbilical blood. Okay. Um, it requires a lot more work, though. But I assume in the long run, we'll produce more blood than simply that donation that you got it from would. Yes, exactly. Okay. And that, that's the whole concept. Right. So, yeah, then then the stem cells are grown in a lab. They're given growth factors to make them differentiate into red blood cells. And an interesting thing that I found about the maturation process of the cells that I didn't realize is that when red blood cells are developed like this from stem cells, there's a point in the maturation where they shed their nucleus. Oh, of course. They, yeah. yeah. I mean, it makes sense. They would need to. Yeah. Cause red yeah. blood cells don't have a nucleus, yeah. um, which leaves more room for them to have hemoglobin to carry oxygen. Yeah. Um, and also means that they can't cause cancer, which is interesting huh. because red blood cells don't divide. Right. They're only produced in the bone marrow. That's something I never thought about, but that makes sense. Yeah, I, th- I just thought that was kind of a neat fact. Like, I, yeah. I guess it, it makes sense thinking about it, but I never had thought about that. Yeah, me neither. So they're hoping to start this study in 2017 mm-hmm. um, and use it to learn about the health effects while simultaneously working on ways to get more blood from smaller numbers of stem cells. Because right now, I mean, the, the dream is to be able to produce, you know gushing, shining, elevator-esque amounts of blood from just a single stem cell donation. Yeah. But we're not there yet. Okay. I I think this is just an exciting sort of point that we're at now where we're doing this large-scale rollout, and it's feasible here that within, you know, within a decade, we might actually have this as the primary method of, of getting blood. Yeah. Still giving donations, but needing a lot less and then growing a lot more from them exactly that's awesome i think that's really cool and it was kind of neat when we talked about that 2011 study where they first injected a patient with lab-grown blood yeah and a quote from one of the authors of that study was uh, at the time he said the results show promise that an unlimited blood reserve is within reach wow and you know that was that was four years ago Mm -hmm. and we're closer than ever so it's more within reach than it was back then and i think it's just need to see things moving along like that. So it's moving quickly. Yeah, it is moving quickly. That's awesome. And in the meantime, uh, it's interesting to see 
sort of how blood services around the world are trying to get people to donate more blood. Yeah. Um, this is a little bit of an aside, but I found a couple interesting, uh, couple interesting anecdotes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in Denmark, the yeah. uh, they tried to increase blood donations by offering a free copy of the video game Bloodborne. <laughs> if you uh, donated, <laughs> that's blood. awesome. Okay. Yeah, and then this is my favorite because yeah. I think this is really cool and sort of a way of upgrading blood donation to the digital age. Mm-hmm. In Sweden, when you donate blood, you get a text message from their blood services when your blood actually makes it into a patient. Oh, that's so cool. I think that's really cool. Letting you know that your blood is actually going around in somebody else's body and you are partially responsible for them being alive. I bet that would do really well to like increase repeat donations. Yeah, exactly. I I think it's a very, very cool idea. That's very cool. I'd like to see more of that in North America as well. Absolutely. Um, Another aside uh, is there's a fascinating episode of Radiolab called Blood. Uh, which is all about yes. the sort of inner workings of uh, blood donation in the U.S. And I learned so much from that. Like, when you donate blood, it can be bought and sold by different blood donation organizations numerous times. That's crazy. After it's donated. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's this secret world, which is fascinating. That's really, really weird, especially in the United States. It's a very different world from Canada. Yes. So yeah, the only other thing I thought would be worth talking about is um, that pretty much every article on this study talked mm. about the blood as being artificial or synthetic. Right. I, I even saw those headlines. Yeah. And I think I even said that a couple of times because it's, it's difficult to communicate the difference between this blood and donated blood. Right. But it's not artificial. It's not it's synthetic. Not artificial. It's, it's not synthetic. It's human blood. It's just it's exactly. cultured. Yeah, it's real human cells. We've just taken them out of the body as stem cells, worked on them a bit, and then put them back in as red blood cells. Right. Um, and I read an interesting comment on an article with somebody complaining about this uh, with a comparison to in vitro fertilization. Oh, okay. Saying that's saying that's a synthetic person. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. Nobody, nobody calls any of the so-called test tube babies. Um, artificial or synthetic people and if, if they do then they're an idiot but yeah like this is real this is real blood and it, it, this is an important distinction to make as we move into a world where um more and more you know i mean we're, we're not insanely far away from lab-grown organs and things like that as well yeah so absolutely it's important to use the right vocabulary here and i think oh i absolutely agree yeah using words like artificial uh, or synthetic creates the wrong idea in people's minds um mm-hmm. yeah we i i think that lab grown is probably the best lab way to grown blood yeah. yeah um cool awesome thanks Good jesse that. yeah no worries so jesse let me let me take you to oklahoma okay before 2008 in oklahoma people noticed about one earthquake per year sure Approximately. It, it varied a lot, but the average person in Oklahoma knows about an earthquake a year. In 2014, there was almost one noticeable earthquake somewhere in the state every day. Holy cow. That's 2008 to 2014. What, that is Six fast. years. That is very fast and kind of alarming. So what, what's changed is really the question. And the obvious answer is that the oil and gas industry in Oklahoma as well as in the, you know, whole central and eastern United States, has exploded. So links have been demonstrated between fluid injection wells 
these are wells used in the oil and gas industry mm-hmm. for a couple different a couple different uses. And links have been demonstrated between these and earthquakes. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So to start off, let's just do a couple quick primers. Sure. I'm going to talk about something called the Richter scale. Yes. So have you heard of the Richter scale before? I assume you I have. I have heard of the Richter scale, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So this is a measurement of how much energy is released by an earthquake. Okay. So anything below two, uh, you don't feel at all. Pretty yeah. much no one feels. Uh, the largest earthquake ever recorded was a 9.5. Right. And the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs would have been about a 13. Okay, cool. Now, those numbers might not seem very different, but the important thing to understand about the Richter scale is it's what's called a logarithmic scale. Right. So every time you go up a number in the scale, you increase Mm -hmm. the energy from the earthquake by a factor of 10. Right. So the difference between, so like an earthquake that's a 6 on the Richter scale is actually 10 times stronger than a 5 on the Richter scale. Exactly. And... Today, we're going to be talking about earthquakes that range between 4 and 6 on the Richter scale. Mm -hmm. Okay, So these are earthquakes that can be felt, and they'll cause damage to poorly constructed buildings, but they don't usually kill people, and they're definitely not massive earthquakes. Okay. But these are the sort of magnitude of earthquakes that have been linked to these fluid injection wells. And there's two types of wells we're going to talk about today. Sure. Okay. So, number one is enhanced extraction wells. What these are is when there's an oil well that's a little tired, it's being produced for a long time, the oil's not flowing so well anymore, Mm -hmm. what people often do is they drill another well and they inject water or steam into the ground in an attempt to cover more oil. Interesting. So essentially pumping oil out using this fluid that they're pumping in. Okay. So they're pumping stuff in, and taking stuff out. Right. And the second type of well is called a wastewater disposal well. So this essentially is because it takes a lot of water to get oil out of the ground in the first place. It ranges mm-hmm. anywhere from half a barrel of water to about two and a half barrels of water per barrel of oil. Hmm. And this requires fresh water, and it usually contaminates it in the process. So what do you do with all of this? Well, an easy solution is you inject it into the ground, and <sighs> hopefully... Avoid any groundwater. Right. So those are the type of wells we're going to talk about today. And note these are not fracking wells. Okay, so what is fracking for those of us who only know of it as the buzzword from Battlestar Galactica? Fracking is, is yeah, fracking is that buzzword. <laughs> fracking is when you artificially create uh, fractures in the rock to pump out oil or gas from it. Okay. So that's not what we're talking about today. These are also can be associated with earthquakes, but the okay. study we're examining today didn't look at these ones. Right, just the fluid injection ones. Just the fluid injection ones. However, some of the wastewater wells are from uh, fracking operations. Okay. So the link between this this fluid injection and earthquakes isn't new. Uh, It was first recognized in the 1960s uh, when the U.S. military had a bunch of wastewater and they injected it in Colorado and triggered an earthquake and were (laughs) rather surprised. (laughs) And the idea behind this is these triggered earthquakes occur along what are called faults in the Earth's crust. So these are places where the rock has broken before, and essentially there's a crack through the rock, but that crack is under stress. There's pressure being put on it, and when you pump fluid into it, it changes the pressure along that crack through the rock and causes the two sides to move relative to one another. Okay, so these faults, these are not... 
um, cracks in between the tectonic plates, right? No, this is all within a single plate. Right. Right? I mean, it it could be on the boundaries between plates. Mm-hmm. But in this case, we're dealing with, you know, the central and eastern U.S. Right. So, so these we're are all not... on the North American plate. Right. So these are not even areas that generally expect a lot of earthquakes because they're not on the... Right. The, the seams between the plates like exactly. we are here. I mean, you get earthquakes pretty much everywhere, mm-hmm. but you don't get the major massive ones in these sort of areas. Right. Yeah. The most recent study, which is the one we're going to talk about today, is attempting to determine what about fluid injection actually causes these earthquakes. Okay. So they compiled specs on all the fluid injection wells in the central and eastern U.S., and they compared this information with earthquake records over the same space. They found that about 10% of wells drilled had earthquakes associated with them, and that these earthquakes which they could associate with a well accounted for over 60% of the earthquakes which were above a magnitude of three on the Richter scale. Wow. So the majority of the earthquakes occurring might be associated with nearby wells that had fluid injected into them around the same time as the earthquake occurred. So how do they know that that's what's causing the earthquake? So... This is a bit of a correlation causation thing. Okay. But to associate an earthquake with a well, the requirement was it had to be nearby and injection had to occur uh, within a reasonable time frame of the earthquake happening. All right. So it's both spatial and temporally associated. Okay. So, but we're reasonably sure that that's what's causing them. Like, it's not like, like, uh, are we going to get people saying, oh no, this isn't us? We're always going to get people saying that. The data here is good. Uh, This is coming out of a recent issue from the magazine Science, the journal Science. Yep. And there are a number of studies published in the same journal which deals with this, which Mm -hmm. approach this problem from different angles. Approach it from modeling angles, approach from this angle of data compilation, and even studies that, you know, set out and scientists actually inject their own fluid and show that they can cause slip along (laughs) these faults. Jeez. So the data they looked at reaches back to 1975. And... Over this entire time, the number of non-associated earthquakes, so the ones that weren't near wells, varies between 10 and 25 a year. And the number of associated earthquakes, the ones that are close to the wells and happen Mm -hmm. at the same time as injection, those rose from between 1 and 7 per year in the 1970s to close to 700 in 2014. Wow. It's insane. That's a factor of 100 greater. Jeez. Yeah. And... The interesting thing is they found a really cool correlation, which is that these earthquakes correlate very well with the wells that are at the highest injection rates. Okay. So this is actually the rate of water you put in. So like wells, speed or frequency though? Like how speed, speed, speed of how fast we're injecting water. Literally how fast we're injecting water. They found that the wells which injected over 300,000 barrels of water a month were Mm -hmm. the ones where these earthquakes were occurring most likely. Okay. Yeah. So the theory is that this increases the pressure along these faults faster because they don't have a, essentially the water doesn't have a chance to dissipate through natural fractures in the rock, right? Right. So it changes the pressure faster and therefore is more likely to trigger an earthquake. Hmm. They also looked at other things like the total pressure at uh, at the injection point and they looked at the total amount of fluid injected or the depth that the fluid was injected at, and they found very little correlation. And they also found, because remember there was those two types of wells? Yep. They found there was the ones that they disposed wastewater in, 
which they just pump water into, and they're the ones that they try to get oil out of as well. They found that the wastewater wells were 1.5 times more likely to be associated with earthquakes. Probably because they're just putting stuff in, they're not taking stuff out too. So you don't have that balance of pressure going in and out. Uh, That makes sense. It does make a lot of sense. And I really like this study because there's a really clear implication for policy here, which is that if you want to prevent these earthquakes, all you have to do is put a speed limit on how fast you inject water. Right. It's a really simple solution. That's the key factor here. So just put a speed limit on it. That makes total sense. That doesn't Now, that doesn't always make fluid injection an okay thing. There's other issues such as groundwater contamination. These are highly debated and would actually make a great other podcast. <laughs> but in terms of causing earthquakes, it seems like what's needed is a speed limit on how right. fast you're allowed to pump water into the ground. Yeah, it seems like a very easy cap on that particular issue, at least. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. It, it is one of those stories where it seems like there's that obvious it's like great we found this out now please fix it and no one's going to do anything but yeah sadly i I hope they do yeah it seems like a really easy way to yeah prevent these yeah um is there any sense as to whether they are creating long-term problems by causing these earthquakes like is the stability of the faults probably changing probably i mean Things are changing for sure, but there's probably not much in terms of long-term effects. Okay. Because this is, I mean, and that's really just because this is an area where you don't get those massive earthquakes usually. Right. Right? Um, I know there's been lots of discussion about, you know, maybe this could be a way to even relieve stress gradually hmm. versus have a massive earthquake. But in this particular area, it's, it's not really, massive earthquakes don't happen very often. Right. Uh, and it's not a huge concern. So it's really just causing the short-term problem of these earthquakes. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Interesting. And I mean, how much of a problem it is, is up for debate. It's caused damage, but not massive amounts of damage. Um, hmm. It's definitely disconcerting for the people who live in the area. Yeah. Because, you know, earthquakes are terrifying. Mm-hmm. And earthquakes which are associated with, you know, the dude who's drilling over there. Yeah. Is, I'd say, even more terrifying. But, yeah, you can debate how... Uh, how much of a problem it is cool well maybe we'll see some policy following this hopefully cool thanks Lucas. hey thanks for listening to this week's episode we've got links to all the studies we discussed and more in the show notes you can find those at doubleblindscience.com hopefully you've enjoyed this week's adventure into science news so check back next week we've got two new and exciting stories for you And if you enjoy us, tell your friends, review us on iTunes, or like buy one of those skywriting things where you can like rent the plane and then they write like doubleblindscience.com in the air. Like maybe crop circles in a field. That would work too. Did you see something in the news you'd like us to cover? A headline that seems too good to be true or a story that no one's explained well enough yet? Uh, Give us a shout by email at stories at doubleblindscience.com or on Twitter at doubleblindsci. Thanks, guys. Now, bone marrow stem cells are what is known as hematopoietic. Is that is that how I'm pronouncing? Am I pronouncing that right? I have no idea how do you spell Hematopoe- it. Hematopoetic potential. Hematopoetic. I can't pronounce it.
Tell me how to spell this internet. What do you think? Um, Matapoetic? 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 Topoietic stem cell. Poietic. <laughs> Hematopoietic. 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 Yeah, okay, I can say that. Hematopoietic. Okay. <laughs>